Welcome to the Insights Podcast on the Huddle Network. I'm David Campbell. And I'm Don Mills. We're now, uh, today we'll be talking to Charlene Johnson, the CEO of the uh, Newfoundland Offshore Oil and Gas uh, Industry Association. This is the fourth of our series on uh, industries, important industries, important industry clusters around Atlantic Canada. And Don, I thought that was an excellent conversation with uh, Charlene today. Yes, I did too. I think it's revealing and informative on a number of fronts. Uh, people uh, have the mistaken impression that uh, it, you know we will no longer need oil and gas as an energy source in the near future. That is, of course, not true. Uh, and, and in fact, uh, the OPEC just recently uh, came out uh, this week with a prediction that uh, uh, currently oil represents about 30% of the uh, energy sources used in the world. In 2045, which is you know down the road a bit, it will be 28%. So a lot of that has to do with uh, developing nations and their requirement for energy to develop their economies, of course. And one of the interesting things that uh, Charlene mentioned in her conversation with us was that we can still be uh, net zero from a carbon point of view by 2050 and still have a significant oil and gas industry. I think that that's something that a lot of people uh, do not understand or, or perhaps even believe. But I think that that was a very important point that she made and that people need to get their heads around. Yeah, I think that that's claim is fairly controversial, but I think it's true. If you look at the data and the, all of the information coming out of the United Kingdom, they're making the same point that uh, they're going to be net zero emissions by 2050, but that they're still going to be pumping oil and gas. I think one of the things I found interesting about that conversation is she makes a very strong case for Canadian and particularly offshore oil from Newfoundland and Labrador in the global context. So even as we start to wean ourselves off oil and gas over the next few decades, she would argue our oil is better because it's cleaner. She said it was 30% uh, less carbon emissions at source. And she talked about other advantages around environment uh, and governance and the, the quality of the environment for oil and gas investment. So I think that's really the issue here is even as we start to phase out over the next 20, 30, 40 years, um, that Canadian oil should be well positioned compared to some of these other countries with, with more dodgy environmental records and governance records and, and, and so on. The other thing that I, I think people might be surprised about is how important oil and gas is to the uh, Newfoundland and Labrador economy. It represents 25% of GDP today. And in, in 30 or 40 years from now, it might actually represent more because she indicated that there's uh, as much as 52 billion, do uh, billion barrels of oil that have yet to be uh, discovered. And she also points out how important the oil and gas industry has been to the government of Newfoundland. It's uh, contributed about uh, $20 billion in royalties to date. And uh, the expectation is that with new discoveries, and there's some big possibilities that, that that number could even go higher, which of course benefits all Newfoundlanders uh, in terms of the services that they receive. And, uh, you know, I think that that's, uh, that's an interesting uh, sort of perspective for people to understand how important it is to the economy in Newfoundland and Labrador. Yeah, I think one of the problems in Canada is we've mostly used the proceeds from oil and gas to fund current expenditures. Alberta did save a little with their uh, their fund, Heritage Fund, but she mentioned Norway. Uh, Norway's fund it represents two million dollars per household in uh, in Norway. So even if you didn't have another penny of oil and gas, all you'd have to do is dividend two million dollars, and everybody'd be a millionaire in Lufen and Labrador, or excuse me, in Norway. And that's a factual statement. Their their sovereign wealth fund is worth two million dollars per household in Norway. So it's a massive, massive investment. And what they did for 40 or 50 years is take, you know, 50% or whatever that share was of all those royalties and pump it into the bank for the day when the oil and gas industry was going to wind down. So I think as we look forward, if there are going to be royalties in Newfoundland and Labrador, they should look at maybe strategically saving some of that. But to your point, they are the most indebted province in the country. 
And uh, there'll be a lot of claims on that, on those royalty revenues, both for current expenditures, but also to pay down that debt. Yeah, the recent report on the recovery of the economy that was uh, just released uh, not that long ago made the recommendation to create such a fund. Um, I forget what the right term is that they use, but uh, a futures fund, I think it was called, uh, so that they could prepare for the transition of the economy at some point, uh, a little bit away from oil and gas. But as Charlene has clearly indicated, that's a very long way in the future. And I think uh, the public really needs to understand the timetable uh, associated with the transitioning to a greener economy and other sources of energy. It's not going to happen overnight. It's going to happen over decades. And that people just have to relax and understand that uh, we have probably the cleanest oil and gas industry in the world. There's a lot of innovation in terms of reducing the, uh, the carbon coming from uh, the sector and um, you know we lead the world in terms of uh, uh, how we extract our oil and gas reserves. I'm glad you asked her about oil and gas careers because there has been a lot of talk nationally about uh, engineers and other other talent not wanting to go into the oil and gas sector because they see it as a dead end sector. But it again, it's this misunderstanding of the timeline. If you really see 20, 30, 40 years of industry activity. Uh, well, that's your career. That's an entire career. Three three decades or more is is almost an entire career. So uh, I do think it's important for them to continue focusing on the talent pipeline and making sure they have good quality talent uh, for not only for the operators, uh, but also for the supply chain in the oil and gas sector. And I would just add just one comment. I think that this sector plays a disproportionate role in attracting immigrants to the province. They need to be a lot more um, in the lead in terms of bringing people to a province that has had population decline since the 2016 census. And uh, they need population growth badly for from a labor perspective. And uh, the oil and gas industry can play a lead role in attracting people to the province. Yeah, finally, uh, I think Charlene Johnson's story, her history is very interesting. She was the first or the youngest a female cabinet minister in the provincial government in the province. Uh, she spent time abroad and then came back a few years ago to run uh, the Offshore Oil and Gas Industry Association. So her personal story is very interesting. She's a little short in, in her comments in our podcast here because she didn't want to talk about herself. But I did. I do think it's uh, it, the, you know, the personality and the stories behind the people that we talk to, I think, are important. Uh, and so anyway, Don, without any further ado, let's, uh, let's move to our conversation with Charlene Johnson, CEO of Noya. Well, good morning, Charlene. Good morning, David. Good morning, Don. Morning. It's great to have you on the Insights podcast uh, this morning. Um, we'd like to, before we get into discussion about Noya and all of the things you have to say about the uh, energy sector uh, in Newfoundland and Labrador and across the region, you have a very interesting CV. I know you from past work, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about your background, your journey, and how you ended up uh, running this organization. Okay, well, I completed my undergrad in your beautiful province. I did my uh, undergraduate in forest engineering at the University of New Brunswick in Fredericton. I went on to do a Master's of Applied Science in Environmental Engineering and a Master of Business. I also completed the uh, ICD designation. Um, I worked in Nova Scotia for some time prior to politics with the, uh, with the utility and review board there. And then in 2003, I made my way back home and I ran in politics here. I was in politics from 2003 until 2014, at which time I decided I wanted to be a full-time mom for a little while and a full-time volunteer. So I moved to Southeast Asia, a tiny country called Brunei. And I also did some part-time uh, lecturing at a business college there. Had a lot of fun, did a lot of travel. And then it was time to return back home again. And I saw the job ad for the CEO here at Noya, and I thought, all of my life, I wanted to give back, do public service, and this was another way that I could help my province because by advocating for the oil and gas industry and the member companies and the people that work in it, I think our province could be stronger. Um, so I thought I could be the voice and I applied for the job and here I am 
almost four years in January now later when I started. Uh, Charlene, maybe we could start with what does NOIA stand for? Uh, some people may not know your organization. Sure, it's the Newfoundland and Labrador Oil and Gas Industries Association. Thank you. Uh, so it was formed, I believe, in the 70s. Uh, uh, its mandate at that time was probably different than the mandate that it, that it currently has. And I understand that you're going through a, a change of mandate. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the organization, kind of its history uh, and, uh, and how it's changed over the years and, and maybe uh, a little bit about uh, uh, it, your membership as well as part of that discussion. Sure. So Noya was founded in 1977. So we've been around a long time. Uh, we'll be celebrating our 45th next year. Uh, it was formed mainly to represent the service and supply sector for the offshore oil and gas industry. Today, we represent close to 500 member companies, and these member companies are worldwide. Um, they're mainly companies that are involved in or benefit from the offshore oil and gas industry here in Newfoundland and Labrador. It's a very diverse representation of companies. We have supply vessels, helicopters, health and safety equipment, training, engineering solutions, fabricators, law firms, human resource agencies, and even consultants. Uh, so it's, it's a broad base. Our main reason, our main reason for being, our main purpose is to support our members in their participation in the Newfoundland and Labrador offshore oil and gas industry. So part of that is advocating for our members. I would say 75 to 85% of my time and our staff and board of directors time is spent on advocacy. Um, not just for our members, but for the industry as a whole, so that we can see our industry grow and so that we can create more opportunities for our members. Um, as you mentioned, Don, interestingly, we are now in the process of potentially changing our name and our mandate. We have gone through considerable consultation with our members, and there is a recognition from them that we, we need to continue with a strong focus on oil and gas, but we also need to look to where the energy action is and advocate for our members' participation in it. Um, many of our members are already participating in other energy sectors, and I think our advocacy and uh, the reputation that we've developed here at NOIA can certainly help benefit in other areas and of the energy sector as well. So in the coming days, you'll see an RFP issued um, that will help us define that mandate and help us rebrand to match that mandate. Now, the oil and gas sector is disproportionately important to the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, it, it, you know, it funds a lot of the services that people take for granted on a day-to-day -day basis. Let's talk about the size and scope uh, of this sector and its impact in Newfoundland, if you could. Yeah, as you said, it makes up about 25% of our GDP. Uh, it's about 41% of our exports here in the province. Um, as of June 2019, which is the latest I have numbers for, there were 8,900 people directly employed in the construction and operations in our industry. Um, in 2017, the latest numbers we have, that, that equated to about 2,400 direct, indirect, and induced jobs just in Newfoundland and Labrador, with another 11,000 jobs in the rest of Canada. Since uh, the industry began in 1997, since the first field uh, came into production, the government of Newfoundland and Labrador has collected $20 billion in just royalties alone. Uh, that doesn't include taxes, uh, consumer spending taxes, personal income tax, that sort of thing. That's just from royalties. And over the last five decades, when exploration began here, there's been about $63 billion spent in capital construction here. So it's uh, quite a significant part of uh, what makes up the economy of Newfoundland and Labrador. But that's the past. We want to focus on the future. And with 50, over 52 uh, billion barrels of unrest oil off our shores and nearly 200 trillion cubic feet of gas, these numbers uh, would certainly be quite, um, 
quite quite larger should new discoveries be found. And a piece of work we did with you, David, actually showed that in 2033, that 23, 24,000 jobs in Newfoundland and Labrador could actually be over 50,000 jobs by only discovering 2 billion of the 52 billion of unraced oil that's out there. So uh, quite the potential. So we're going to talk, Charlene, about the future here in a moment. I did want to ask you a little bit about the supply chain. You you say you represent 500 member firms. When I did that analysis for you, I was kind of surprised at just how much economic activity does occur in the supply chain. Do we kind of know the number of firms involved in the oil and gas supply chain and the scope of that? So I don't have an exact number of how many companies are involved in the supply chain, but I think it's fair to say that of the hundred of the four hundred and seventy members that we do have at Noya, all of them are either directly or indirectly involved, and those aren't just companies in Newfoundland and Labrador. For instance, we have sixty member companies from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick. Um, so it's not just the benefit here; it, it goes far beyond the shores of Newfoundland and Labrador. There, in terms of the value that it brings, we did a piece of work again with you, David, uh, and for every dollar that was spent um, on oil and gas extraction, 45 cents was spent in other jurisdictions. So 55 cents of every dollar was coming to Newfoundland and Labrador. And when you look at the capital side of things, 48 cents was spent in Newfoundland and Labrador. So again, a very strong contributor to our province, but this also goes to show that there is more work that can be done to expand opportunities here in Newfoundland and Labrador when basically half of the money is leaving the province. Um, Opportunities were identified for fabrication, custom manufacturing, and so on. So those are pieces of work that we were getting going on and COVID happened and we went into full advocacy mode. But these are some of the things we really want to ramp up again. Yeah, COVID, COVID had some interesting impacts on the industry, not only nationally, but around the world. It was a very interesting time. But we have heard in the last few weeks about new uh, extension projects or expansion projects. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the good news stories around Terra Nova and uh, the proposed LNG project that was announced uh, or discussed at your annual conference last week? And also a little bit of an update on the partnership or the potential partnership with the and I'm going to I'm going to pronounce it wrong. I apologize, Charlene, but the Mawapukek First Nation, which again, given our, our newfound our important new interest in in partnership with First Nations, I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. So last week we just held our annual conference, as you said, after missing 2020 due to COVID. Uh, the mood at conference was certainly very positive, very upbeat. But we also recognize that we've been through a lot, as have many other industries and individuals and companies. Uh, Many people have been impacted, and we certainly have challenges before us. Having said that, we did try to focus very much on the positive news. Uh, Recently, news of the Terra Nova Asset Life Extension. So this is 10 more years of production, uh, certainly brighten the mood in our industry. And work has already begun on that project. That's over a thousand jobs, Uh, you know, and, and you know, when people are uncertain about their future, spending tends to freeze. And now, uh, you know, this, I think, will bode well for not only the supply chain in Newfoundland and Labrador, but for restaurants and car dealerships, and the list goes on and on. We heard many stories of uh, families that had to take their children out of recreational activities, and they were so relieved to keep their job or to get their job back. So now their child can do hockey or swimming again. Really, some really tough stories to hear through this period, but this was a very, very positive announcement. And also at conference last week, Sonovus Energy presented, uh, they had some very positive things to say about the West White Rose project. So that concrete gravity structure is half built, um, and then COVID happened and activity shut in there. While they didn't make a commitment at conference to say it will restart, we were certainly given very positive signs that maintenance work was ongoing and um, they informed us that a decision will be coming next year. 
So again, with being 60% complete now, we're very hopeful that that will proceed as well. That project at one point had upwards of 2,200 people on site, tradespeople. So again, quite significant in rural Newfoundland and Labrador where that construction was happening. Equinor presented at conference. Uh, they will be drilling two exploration wells next year at the Beta Nord field. There's been a lot of recent positive news about wells in that area and a lot of confidence that sanction is coming closer and closer. Uh, they did speak very positively. Again, no commitments, but I think for us now, it's a matter of when, not if, and all of our members are looking to this next field off our shores. Um, Hibernia and Hebron, they continue to be very important facilities for ExxonMobil, but also for our members and for our province. Um, Exxon being the lead operator in those two. They've demonstrated a commitment to our, to our province. You know, I think for 30 plus years, they leased a building downtown. They purchased their own. So that's a very telling sign of their commitment to this place. They also plan to drill next year as well. So it's exciting to see a couple of drill way drill rigs offshore next year. Um, and then, yes, the LNG project. So that was discussed at conference. It's exciting for many reasons in that this is an opportunity that we can finally unlock the potential of our natural gas offshore uh, for commercialization. There's such potential there to supply markets in Europe but also the partnership with the Meowpagek First Nation, that, that was extremely positive. And it shows how we can use energy projects to benefit all areas of this province and all people in this province. So a lot of work does remain on that project, particularly when it comes to financing, but I do have a good feeling about its future and uh, certainly commend all those involved for their vision. The right people are certainly around the table. If this is gonna happen, there's certainly the right people there. There's um, a lot of interest in LNG, of course. There's, there was a potential project in St. John at one point using uh, gas coming up the Maritimes and Northeast Pipeline. There was discussion, continues to be discussion, about one off offshore Nova Scotia. And I just was reading this week about all the challenges that Europe is having with, with its natural gas market and how they would love to have another supply from a place like uh, Atlantic Canada. So I think you know, it's a bit frustrating, I understand, because these are multi-decade projects. And I think the one that they announced last week, the potential one, I think it requires a multi-hundred kilometer pipeline or something. 600 so it, kilometer pipeline, about $10 billion in capital construction. Uh, so certainly challenges. But when you look at the opportunities, gas, of course, has a lower carbon impact than oil and coal. Uh, when you look at our geographic proximity to Europe, I know Germany is certainly looking for natural gas. And when you look at the fact that this is non-fracked gas, uh, that's certainly a big um, positive for European nations and others, and the Indigenous partnership. So uh, a lot of uh, a lot of the right things happening, a lot of the right people around the table. They do set their sights on 2030 for production. Um, so it's one, it's one to pay close attention to for sure. Yeah, and it is local, and I'll put that in quotes, gas, because both of the <laughs> other uh, proposed projects, we're talking about bringing gas all the way from Alberta, in some cases all the way from Pennsylvania. So that's many, many thousands of kilometers, whereas this is gas, so there should be some cost and, and related synergies from from pulling gas out of the fields offshore Newfoundland and Labrador. So it'll be very, very exciting to follow that uh, uh, up. So Don, I'll turn it over to you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, you know, uh, Charlene, there's been a lot of talk about Canada phasing out oil and gas uh, development as the global demand starts to de decline through uh, 2050. You know, as somebody who tracked public opinion for all my career, the one thing that, that I think is clear is that the people, uh, the public has really little understanding of the timetable and, 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 and what's going to happen over the next three decades or so. Um, and, you know, the, getting to net neutral on carbon uh, does not mean that the oil and gas industry will go away. And in fact, we will need the oil and gas industry for many decades going ahead. And I think a lot of a lot of Canadians, in fact, a lot of 
people in the world do not understand that. I mean, and I, I think that that's obviously uh, a challenge for the industry to be able to communicate a realistic timeline and time frame in, in which the trans transition to uh, what they call the green uh, economy and, and other sort of um, energy sources has to take place. And there are many uh, modes of transportation right now who do not have an alternative to oil, to oil and gas as, a, as an energy source. Can you talk about uh, th- those challenges for your uh, association uh, looking over the next uh, couple of decades? You know, for an example, we had talked uh, before we started the podcast about attracting people to this industry if they think it's a short-term industry. Can you can you talk about what your your industry association is doing to tackle the challenges around those issues? Sure, and I think it's about transformation, not transition, and transforming how we operate within oil and gas to lower the carbon footprint. Because I think sometimes when people use the word transition, they think it might be around the corner, and that could mean different things to different people. But it's certainly not eighteen months. It's not even 18 years. Uh, I read a lot, and the reality is that, is that the demand for oil is going to be around for a long time yet. And we are all very focused on net zero by 2050, but net zero does not mean zero oil and gas. And when you look at the portfolio projections in 2050, even though we'll be at net zero, oil and gas is still going to make up a huge part of that portfolio. You know, in Canada, we are so fortunate. We have an excellent standard of living, as does Europe and the United States and other developed countries. Um, But there's many in this world that do not have the standard of living that we do, but want that standard of living. And there's many countries that want running water and electricity. And add to that the fact that the projections are that there's going to the world's population is going to increase by 2 billion people that are all going to want that standard of living too. Oil and gas is certainly going to be around for a long time yet. And all we have to do is look at current events and what is happening in Britain right now. And uh, the fact that California is now looking at developing natural gas plants again. So, you know, I think um, it's for us, it's not about one industry over the other. It's all forms of energy on deck meeting the demand that is there. And it's, it is truly simple economics when it comes to supply and demand. And the companies that work in this industry, we certainly need to do our part. Uh, we're seeing a lot of innovation happen. The program at our conference this year was very heavily weighted to looking at how companies are lowering their carbon footprint, Exxon replacing out cranes from diesel to electric, Atlantic towing replacing their engines with hybrid batteries. That innovation is going around all around us. And I think as an industry association, we need to lead by example and we recently applied to the provincial government here for funding on a net zero project in partnership with the Environmental Association here. They used to be called NIA, the Newfoundland Labrador Environmental Association. They were just renamed last week to Econext. And at our conference last week, uh, Minister Parsons announced funding for us to um, for us to work together on that project. So, you know, we will be looking at how to further lower the carbon emissions within our industry, how to look at uh, clean tech, how to look at powering platforms offshore using electrification. So certainly pretty exciting times in our industries. I think all industries need to be focusing on net zero by 2050. And I think a lot of the innovation can come from oil and gas. I think we can be that building block for the tech sector and others to find ways to lower the carbon footprint. But it's, uh, you know, the whole energy mix, it's it's an energy evolution, it's supply and demand, and it's really all all energies on deck to meet that demand. You know, we we don't look for free passes when it comes to the environment. We're so 
proud of the environmental record we have here in Canada. Uh, BMO has ranked Canada as a leader in ESG resource development, and that's something that we're very proud of and something that we need to strive to maintain. When you look at the labor practices here in Canada, rule of law, the environment and safety regulations, uh, we consistently rank at the top and we want to continue to rank at the top. And I think that is something that we need to market to the world and have our governments, both provincial and federal, work with us to market that. On top of the fact that the oil here in Newfoundland and Labrador is already 30% below greenhouse gases at extraction, combined with that, if we can market everything else we're doing to lower the carbon footprint, I think we'd be a product in very high demand. Well, you know, I. I think people, you said something I think a lot of people will be surprised at. You, you said uh, that we can get the net zero by 2050 with still a significant part of our energy coming from oil and gas. I think that w- that's going to surprise a lot of people. And and one of the things that, uh, that Canada has certainly done a good job at as being a leader in reducing the carbon footprint of the oil and gas industry. It is a leader. And uh, so... Uh, Continued innovation will continue to lower that carbon footprint going forward, obviously. But, you know, the challenge, again, I think for your industry and your association is getting that information out. How do you do that? How do you do that to educate the population about the reality of where energy is going to have to come from? And the fact that we can get the net zero by 2050, even uh, without... Uh, necessarily walking away from the oil and gas industry, by the way, which is so important to the whole country. Yeah, you know, advocacy is a huge piece of it in terms of working with our provincial and federal and municipal governments, but also the people that work within the governments, not just the elected officials. Um, Talking to the public, I pre-COVID, would go around the province, around the country, around the world, talking about the product here, talking about what we do, why we need oil, how it's not just for gas or for heating your home. It's virtually in everything we use and touch every day. Uh, Working with young people and encouraging them to come work in our energy to help us to continuously innovate to lower that carbon footprint. Uh, So education and awareness is also a huge piece of what we do. We embarked on an Imagine the Potential campaign and a My Offshore, My Future campaign. And, uh, you know, I think we continuously need to, we can't be shy about talking about the great steps that we have already taken to lower the carbon footprint in our industry and talk about the specific examples so people can see what we're doing. I think, you know, certainly we can do a better job of that in our industry. And we have a lot of examples and a lot more to come. A lot of those were at conference. We're looking at powering platforms with with um, hydroelectric power from Muskrat Falls offshore. Um, should that happen? And the research shows that technically this is absolutely feasible. And even financially, uh, it you know it could be about a billion, a billion and a half dollars to do that. But on a $10, $15 billion capital construction project, Uh, and the benefits that come from it after, because often when you um, initiate projects that lower your carbon footprint, you're also saving money as well. So, uh, you know, those those are exciting things. And we need to encourage people of all ages to understand the importance of this industry. And more so here in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's very acutely important here because it does make up 25% of our greenhouse gas emissions. So I think we need to talk more about all of those things that we're doing and what we plan to do. And I thank you for the opportunity to do that today. Yeah, so I think one of the challenges we haven't really defined what net means yet. I mean, obviously, we're looking at planting trees. There's the first uh, commercial scale carbon uh, capturing carbon from the atmosphere plant started in Iceland this week. I was reading there are oil and gas firms looking at uh, injecting uh, um, carbon into the into old uh, uh, reserves and so on. So there's lots of things that can get us to net. Uh, but I just don't think we've done a great job of of defining what net means actually uh, as of yet, at least for the public, right? I, I don't really understand uh, what the term net means. But I just wanted to ask you, you talked earlier about the the planned activity, very exciting around uh, West White Rose. 
uh, Equinor and so on. So I think there's some exciting things happening on that side. But I wanted you to just reiterate why companies would want to invest uh, in the offshore Newfoundland and Labrador. You talked a little bit about the environmental and governance uh, 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 benefits, and I think there's a really compelling case there. Uh, but, you know, as you know well, these companies have limited resources and they can invest it all over the world. There's fields in uh, the Middle East, there's fields in offshore Africa, there's fields in offshore South America. Of course, Norway is still pushing hard. Of course, the UK is determined to wring every last barrel out of its resources uh, in the North Sea. So what is the case, and even compared, quite frankly, to Alberta, what is the case for uh, offshore investment in uh, Newfoundland and Labrador? So geologists would get this, but it's our rocks. And <laughs> <laughs> truly, it's the exploration potential off our shores and the geology. So having 52 billion barrels of oil, unrisked oil, uh, in only 9% of the offshore that's been explored yet presents tremendous opportunity. Um, you know, we know that there's probably a dozen or more major fields out there. Now, until you actually drill, you don't know if it's oil, gas, or worst case scenario, water. Um, but some of the fields out there, one in particular called Cape Friels, has the potential for 5 billion barrels of recoverable oil. It has the same geological formations as a major field in Brazil called the Merlin Field, and I think that one has about 2.8 billion barrels of recoverable oil. What that one discovery would mean for our province, you know, the royalties that would come in from that would likely be more than our entire provincial budget alone annually. Um, so there's about, you know, 10, 12 out there with over a billion barrels of oil from what the 2D seismic and the 3D seismic tell us. Of course, the proof is uh, when you go out and drill. Um, the fact that we have a government that is working with our industry and talking to us about what we can do to, um, you know, incentivize exploration sooner, that's certainly uh, an attractive piece for investors to come to our province. Uh, just last year during the pandemic, we sat down and met with the premier and the minister and uh, we, um, you know, talked about the importance of keeping up with Norway. Norway drills 55, 60 wells in a good year. In the pandemic, sure, they were drilling 35. And I just saw recently they're going to be drilling 40 this year. We, we drilled one this year um, and two, maybe four next year. Uh, and unless you drill, you don't discover. So this, the government came up with an exploration incentive and we were happy to see at conference last week that the government announced ExxonMobil is taking advantage of that. So when you have the government on side trying to work with you, that's certainly an attractive piece. Having said that, there are still certainly challenges within the federal government in terms of the length of time it takes. We've also made great strides in those areas through advocating for nearly two years. We now have a much more streamlined process for uh, environmental assessment for exploration wells used to take nearly three years to get an exploration well approved here and we're talking about a 90-day activity on average so i just referenced norway so in the time it took to to uh, approve one well here norway would have drilled 120 130 wells um, but we've made great success on that, and there's a new regional assessment process in place now where the federal government has committed to a 90-day process. It doesn't, um, it doesn't impact the environment in any way. It was just added process, not added protection. So, you know, combined with the resource, the skills, the supply chain, the technical expertise here, the people, um, it's labor practices and it's a very friendly place where we're welcoming to all. Uh, you know, there's many, many uh, positive reasons to come invest in Newfoundland and Labrador. And our doors are certainly wide open for business. So I just wanted to ask you quickly a little bit more about government and the role of government. You indicated the, the program that was put in place earlier and the effort to reduce the time to get uh, wells approved. Um, but what is the role of government? Obviously, we're competing with Norway and other jurisdictions. Are you 
is are things getting better? Are you reasonably happy? Because again, you do have a lot of language out of Ottawa talking about transitioning from oil and gas without putting that, as we talked about earlier, appropriately putting the timing on that. So for some national media, national journalists, that seems like it's it's a it's a cognitive dissonance, right? You're saying on one hand we got to get off oil and gas, and on the other hand you're saying you're going to support Terra Nova. So are you seeing better uh, um, things coming out of Ottawa these days uh, based on the work that you've done with uh, with the provincial government working with Ottawa? Yeah, I certainly think we're making progress at times incremental, but progress nonetheless. Um, always room for improvement. And I would really like to see our federal government recognize the product that we have. You know, often people say, oh, the the downstream uh, greenhouse gases uh, is what matters. Well, no, what matters is the input too. And the fact that we're 30% lower at extraction definitely uh, does you know, certainly benefits the environment when you look at it from a global perspective. So I'd really like to see our federal government work with us to help market our oil as a responsible alternative and a responsible product. And I'd like to see them on the international stage talking about that and encouraging investment to come here. And We'll, we'll see. We'll, we look forward to a uh, new cabinet being appointed and working. You know, Minister O'Regan has been really good to deal with and he has um, gone to bat for our industry. But, you know, it's uh, you're right. At the federal level, it is a lot of talk of tra- about transition. And we understand that. We, we understand the importance of doing our part for climate change and reducing the emissions, but we also realize that the energy sector makes up a huge component of our economy. And we also realize that $20 billion worth of oil is imported here annually. So this could be an economic driver to help us get out of COVID. And we'd love to see our federal elected officials on stage with us touting the product that we do have here. But again, it comes back to education and awareness, and I can't wait to get back on track and being in Ottawa and sitting down with the different departments and talking about what we have here and why it's beneficial. Uh, Newfoundland and Labrador is uh, very fiscally challenged these days. It has uh, enormous debt, not just provincial debt, but if you add in muskrat balls, some Somebody uh, indicated that about there's about forty billion dollars of combined debt for a population of about five hundred thousand. You also have a problem of an aging, aging population and a declining population since the last census. So, you know, the fiscal and economic challenges facing the province are enormous. And I, I don't. I actually, even despite the recent report that was. Uh, put out to, uh, about the future um, and the recommendations. You know, the role, I guess, uh, of oil and gas will will be important to, to address the fiscal challenges, certainly in the short term, if not the long term. But I'd like to get your thoughts on the long-term future of uh, Newfoundland and Labrador. Um, you mentioned earlier that the sector accounts for uh, 25% of the provincial GDP. Uh, that, that's a that's huge. I don't think there are any other, maybe Alberta would, would have that kind of mm-hmm. impact, but um, it's a big, you know, big part of the economy right now. Where do you see things evolving over the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years in terms of where will be, where, where will be the oil and gas sector as a percentage of GDP? Have you looked at that in the next 20 years, 20 to 30 years? Well, we did some projections out to 2033 uh, scenarios that if what if 2 billion barrels of that 52 billion barrels was actually commercially viable. And that's just a very small, it's very mm-hmm. conservative. Um, as I mentioned, Cape Friels would have 5 billion alone. And that's only one field of the 650 leads and prospects that are off our shore. So do I see it being 25%? We don't have anything concrete, but... Um, some of the numbers that we showed is that if if this two billion comes to fruition, the royalties and taxes from the oil and gas sector in 2033 would be greater than all other forms of income to government combined, with the exception of federal transfers. So it's 
It's massive. It's absolutely massive. And when the oil and gas sector is doing well, all other industries are doing well. It drives the construction industry. It drives the restaurant industry and so on. So for me, this isn't about one industry. This is about all industries, all sectors running hot, working together for the benefit of our province. So I hope that it's far more than 25% in the future, while not losing sight of the fact that we still have to continuously work to develop other industries, develop renewables, lower the carbon footprint. Uh, There's no reason we can't do all of that together. I noticed that OPEC uh, just came out uh, with a um, sort of a projection about oil, the oil and gas industry, <clears throat> they indicated that, uh, I think in 2020, uh, 30% of energy came from oil. In uh, 2045, they expect it to be down, but only to 28%. That's not a big drop as a source of energy. They also indicate that OPEC will continue to be the leading source of oil, which brings me to the question of Canada's self-sufficiency in oil. We already have the possibility of being energy self-sufficient. We have, we're having trouble getting oil across the country through pipelines. Obviously there's a, there's resistance to that, but can you, uh, can you talk about the, this is a, a question that just came out of what you just said, but can you talk about the opportunities for Canada to be totally self-sufficient, not require oil coming in from other jurisdictions. What would that mean for Canada? I think it's something that the federal government should certainly be considering. Energy independence uh, is a key area to be focusing on, especially when you see what's going on in the world today in in the UK and beyond and how they're at the whim of others. And we all know likely what's going to happen to prices uh, going forward when you are at the whim of others. I mentioned we bring in about uh, 19 to 20 billion dollars worth of oil each year. That could come from here. But as you know, the way that the oil energy market works is that uh, you sell to the highest bidder. Uh, Oil from Newfoundland and Labrador gets sold to 14 different countries around the world. In fact, just pre-COVID, I haven't seen recent numbers, but pre-COVID, Norway even bought oil from Newfoundland and Labrador. (laughs) During COVID, there were shipments going to California. So, That's how the market works now. But if need be, at some point in the future, depending on what happens, yes, that oil could be produced here and uh, processed here and used here. So it's something we definitely have to have in the back of our minds as energy policymakers in government. Uh, Just from your perspective as a former cabinet minister and the CEO of NOAA, what needs to happen to ensure the province can thrive in the long term, given its uh, fiscal and financial challenges today? Well, again, it's education, awareness. It's working with our partners, both in government, outside of government, other industry associations. You know, the government had a report released recently, the Premier's Economic Recovery Team, the PERT report, and it was led by uh, Dane Moya Green. And she had pages and pages on this industry. And the key thing that jumped out to me was if we are going to improve the fiscal situation here in the province, we cannot leave this oil resource stranded. And those are the words she used. We cannot leave them stranded. And she also talked about a futures fund, not dissimilar to what Norway has, except theirs is about a trillion dollars. But she talked about using the revenue from the offshore to help with the evolution, to help develop renewable energies, to support our people. That's something that we entirely support here at Noya. We just need to get our offshore going so we can make sure that happens. I I just have a a quick follow-up question about... uh, manpower and and filling jobs uh, in the oil and gas industry with the decline in population, the aging population, with really little success to date on immigration in the province. Uh, What role does your industry have in in terms of attracting talent 
uh, from other parts of the world to your province? Yeah, having Newfoundlanders and Labradorians come home is key, and I'm sure they will jump at the opportunity when that arises again. But absolutely, immigration is a huge part of that. At conference last week, we had a number of students, engineering and business students, and they are the best and the brightest, and they are the ones that are going to work in our industry to come up with the innovative, creative ways to lower the carbon footprint. Um, if we get to where I hope we will be with a couple of uh, new platforms coming on stream, we are going to need a lot of people in the province. And sadly, many have left because of the downturn with COVID here. And, and they're all over the world, Trinidad, Tobago, out west in the United States. Uh, again, as I said, like me, they will come home. I'm, I'm certain of that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's talking to our young people to get them to stay. And immigration is absolutely a huge piece as well. Charlene, final question for me. Um, if you had to characterize your view of things right now, are you optimistic about the next five to 10 years? Are you pessimistic? Are you kind of neutral? Where are you on the outlook both for your industry and your province uh, in the short to medium term? I am always the ever optimist <laughs> and I will unturn every stone and do whatever we have to do when it comes to advocacy in a very diplomatic way. That is my style, but I cannot sit back 20 years from now and wonder what if uh, you know, if the if the oil does get stranded, you know, what we could have been, I, I just can't think that way. So we're very fortunate to have a very involved board of directors here. We're very fortunate to have a government that we can work with. Um, I, I'm very optimistic about the future. The fact that we're drilling four wells next year, while that doesn't seem like a lot to Norway for us, there's going to be two more drilling rigs out there. That's a really positive sign. And 10 years from now, 15 years from now, I want to see two to three more platforms out there. And that's my vision for the future. And I think we will continue to advocate so that that, will, that vision becomes a reality. Charlene Johnson, CEO of Noya, soon to be something else. Stay tuned. Thank you for joining us today on the Insights Podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the latest episode of Insights on the Huddle Podcast Network. Mark Legere helped produce this episode. You can follow the show on podcast platforms like Apple and Spotify. And if you've enjoyed listening, please recommend the show to a friend. Don and David will be back again next week.